Darkcast Network, indie pods with a dark side. Three ninety nine BC. Amidst the bustling streets in the city state of Athens, one of its most prominent and revered citizens was accused of high crimes against the democratic state. His arraignment was shocking to the average Athenian, for the charges officially laid against the notoriously wise and virtuous Socrates were impiety towards the gods and corrupting the youth. Charges that drove to the heart of Athenian civic life in 4th century BC. News spread quickly as neighbors and co-workers gossiped about the case, and its viral social spread ignited fierce passions and sparked heated debates throughout the agora, the taverns, and the bathhouses of ancient Greece. At the heart of the case was a man named Anitis, a young, ambitious, and jealously ignorant politician who had accused Socrates of leading young Athenians astray with his subversive ideas. He was a man with a lot to gain from taking down Socrates, and he had powerful political allies pulling for him in the background. Ones that were worried about the historical directions Athens would head towards if the Socratic civil contagion spread any further. As the trial began, tensions were razor sharp. The courtroom was packed with spectators, and the air was thick with anticipation. Yet Socrates himself seemed calm and composed, as if he had been preparing for this moment his entire life. The jury of the Democratic Assembly were gradually silenced as Socrates rose to the speaker's platform. He took stock of the room, adjusted his robe slightly, and then began to address the trumped-up charges made against him by stating that, quote, I do not know, men of Athens, how my accusers may have affected you. As for me, I was almost carried away in spite of myself. So persuasively did they speak. And yet, hardly anything of what they said was true. Unquote. Welcome to Smoke-Filled Rooms, a political true crime podcast exploring history's most infamous governments, parties, leaders, Policies and Discontents Hosted by Gregory Zink Hello everyone, and welcome back to Smoke-Filled Rooms, a Darkcast Network show dedicated to exposing the nexus between political treachery and true crime storytelling. I am your host, Gregory Zink, and we will now be diving into one of the original political scandals of written antiquity. One that has been theorized, argued, and analyzed for over 2,400 years. A case so notorious that its legacy and texts survive to this very day as foundational elements of Western civilization. What I will be deep diving into over the coming episodes is the trial and execution of Socrates one of the greatest minds to ever grace the pages of philosophical history. In the course of our investigations, we will look at the man in question himself, the historical context of his prosecution, the political philosophy of the trial, the foundational texts that inform our understanding of the event, and the conclusions we can draw from this tragic outcome 
of Socrates' killing. It's a true crime saga almost as old as recorded history itself, one that involves possible pederasty, political dissidents, legal indictments, high courtroom oratory, principled stands, and ultimately, a death that blurs the lines between execution and suicide. So let's start our deep dive by looking at the man of the proverbial hour, the gadfly of Athens, the progenitor of the Socratic method, and, as the oracle at Delphi would previously knight him, the wisest of men. Dear listeners, let us look at the legacy of Socrates of ancient Greece. Socrates was an Athenian-based philosopher who lived in Greece during the 5th century BC. Since this time, his ideas and teachings have had a profound and I would even say foundational influence upon Western philosophy. And because of this, he is widely regarded as one of the most important figures in the history of not only the West, but of the world. And this is especially interesting considering that Socrates himself never wrote anything down. This was because he was a man who deeply held to the principles of good faith dialogue as a manner to ascertain truth, beauty, wisdom, reality, and the good life. Indeed, we must rely on the writings of his followers and ancient historians, most notably his student Plato, to understand the totality of his life and philosophical pursuits. Socrates is not said to have held a conventional job or career in the traditional sense of the term, as in, he didn't perfect a craft or master a profession in which he made income from. Although in Gore Vidal's historical fiction novel entitled Creation, which I highly recommend, the title character who himself is a Persian ambassador and grandson of the prophet Zoroastrian. Cyrus Spitema, who was living in Greece at the time, was said to have hired Socrates to repair damaged brick on his home. The likes of which happened painfully slow and horribly done. <laughs> and just to quickly note that this Vidal work, which will be listed in the show notes, is a highly engaging and sweeping philosophical journey through the ancient world one where the title character travels to meet and speak with Persian royalty, Greek philosophers like Democritus, and eventually has long stays with the Buddha in India and then with Lao Tzu and Confucius in China. Interestingly, all of these figures, including Socrates, were alive at roughly the same time in human history, which is a fascinating aspect to appreciate about this era of time. But getting back to ancient Greece, Socrates devoted an inordinate amount of time to his philosophical pursuits. It seems as though his favorite pastime was engaging in seemingly random philosophical conversations with his fellow Athenians. Often just wandering around the city center and striking up conversations in the hopes of acquiring the deepest of truths and finding the wisest man alive. Ostensibly, so he could learn from such people and become a better man through truth and wisdom. And in the process of just openly discussing important topics in public, 
he attracted a dedicated following. These men would later be known as his students and would stay by his side right up until his final moments. These included Xenophon, Plato, Aristippus, and Euclides, most of whom we'll meet along the way. And just to reiterate, Socrates did not seek wealth or material possessions throughout his life. He considered these to be secondary pursuits to that of wisdom and the examination of ethical questions. And even though he could have charged his students, much like the rhetoricians and sophists did at the time, he seems to have simply accepted whatever was given to him out of pure charity by his inner circle and the Athenian community more generally. Gifts of food, money, and clothing that were likely given in pure gratitude of the philosophy he imparted on all those who opened their minds enough to actually listen. Regardless of the charity he received though, he was said to have embraced a simple and frugal lifestyle, often described as being indifferent towards material comforts. For he believed that his philosophical mission was of the utmost importance and that accumulating wealth or pursuing material success would distract him from the quest for truth and knowledge. And his lack of concern for material wealth was evident in both his public persona and his day-to-day -day life. He often walked barefoot, wore plain clothing, and appeared to have minimal personal possessions. His lifestyle was in stark contrast to the prevailing norms of Athenian society which placed significant importance on wealth, social status, and material possessions. So here we can begin to understand how Socrates the man related to the society around him and what would eventually lead to the accusations laid against him. And more importantly, how cowardly, incurious, cruel, and unjust lots of members of the Athenian citizenry would judge a man of such high moral standing for he would interact with anyone in good faith, and this no doubt ruffled the feathers of some of the most unsavory elements of ancient Greece. Ones who sought unbridled political power, the enshrinement of greed, and to keep the average citizen dumbed down and distracted by religious pursuits. And in regards to the basic philosophy of Socrates, we can perhaps say that it can be summed up by two of his most famous maxims. The first being, know thyself, and the second, all that I know is that I know nothing at all. Starting with the former, knowing oneself meant engaging in introspection, self-reflection, and examining one's own beliefs, values, and motivations. It involved looking deeply inward and questioning one's own assumptions and biases about your thoughts and actions in everyday life. And if you went about this business honestly, you'd be able to gauge your own character, values, strengths, weaknesses, and limitations. Something we postmoderns should perhaps harken back to as a stiff reality check. But nested within this necessary self-reflection was Socrates' belief that true knowledge and understanding of the external world could only be achieved by first understanding oneself. By knowing one's own limitations, biases, and areas of ignorance, individuals can approach the pursuit of knowledge and truth with humility and the intellectual honesty that these important topics deserve. Matters such as ethics, 
politics, living virtuously, and being the best possible version of yourself. Furthermore on this front, Socrates believed that self-knowledge was intimately connected to the development of ethical and moral character. So by examining oneself and gaining awareness of one's values, desires, and intentions, individuals could align their actions with their ideals and cultivate virtue. And this is where the idea of knowing that you know nothing at all bumps up against introspection of oneself. For the process of self-examination and self-knowledge was not a one-time achievement, but a lifelong pursuit. Socrates encouraged individuals to constantly question themselves, challenge their beliefs, and strive for radical self-improvement. Mostly by making them realize, through his own method of argumentation and approach to complex topics, to first admit that you don't really know much about anything. He believed that the path towards wisdom and personal growth required an ongoing self-awareness of this fact and the willingness to confront one's own shortcomings and biases. First and foremost, by having people admit to themselves that they were ignorant about way more things than which they could actually credibly claim pure knowledge of. So by knowing oneself and adopting radical humility in intellectual pursuits, Socrates argued individuals could better understand others, empathize with different perspectives, and engage in meaningful and probably life-changing dialogue. Socrates was also known for his emphasis on ethics and morality. He believed that there was a universal standard of right and wrong, and that individuals had a moral obligation to act in accordance with this standard. Furthermore, he believed that virtue was the key to the good life, and that individuals should strive to cultivate virtues such as wisdom, courage, and justice. A set of desirable characteristics that his student twice removed, Aristotle, would decades later perfect as a system known as value ethics. But apart from focusing on the personal development of people around him, Socrates was also a highly skilled political analyst one that would routinely become sharply critical of Athenian democracy, which he believed was deeply corrupt and irredeemably unjust. For one of his core beliefs was that true wisdom, and thus political policy of the state, could not be found in the opinions of the majority, but only through individual inquiry and reflection. A sentiment that was articulated thoroughly in Plato's landmark work entitled Republic. And it was Socrates' staunch insistence on questioning Athenian society and its values that led him to being viewed with suspicion by the authorities and wealthy social elites who didn't like or understand what he was imparting on society. Likely viewing him and his teachings as a sort of preemptive attack on their way of life. Again, I have to remind everyone that Socrates has no direct texts attributed to him and thus we rely primarily on the works of Plato to understand his ideals and message. One that could have been expertly tailored to suit Plato's ideas by using Socrates as a puppet to some degree. For as we will see as the series develops, I have a lot of theories about Socrates and why his message may have been slightly corrupted by an idealistic student who wanted to leave his own mark on history. But we'll get into that as we approach the end of our series. So now that we understand a little bit more about the man himself, 
we should try to get a sense of the place in which Socrates lived and existed. And by this I mean that we will explore a little bit more about the political and civic context in which Socrates' trial commenced. For it was not purely a matter of a rabble-rousing and charismatic citizen planting new ideas into the heads of people that so angered the Athenian elites. His eventual trial was also the byproduct of social, religious, and foreign policy factors of the time. In 399 BC, Athens was still recovering from its tragic defeat in the Second Peloponnesian War. Its population was reckoned to be around 100,000 people, and their economy was based largely around trading of specialized goods. And they were especially well-placed geographically to do this. Athens had a strategic location along the Aegean Sea, which facilitated regional commerce. The city-state had a bustling port, Piraeus, which served as a hub for a lot of maritime activities in the Mediterranean. Athens engaged in extensive trade with other Greek city-states, where they bought goods like timber and luxury items, while exporting goods like pottery, olive oil, silver, and wine. But the Peloponnesian War greatly interfered with their way of life as a forward-looking and quasi-capitalist society. This regional conflict lasted from 431 to 404 BC and pitted the Athenians and their allies against the Spartan League. The war eventually weakened Athens both militarily and economically, and the city had also suffered simultaneously from a devastating plague in the early years of the conflict. During the Peloponnesian War, Athens faced significant military setbacks, including the loss of its powerful navy and the destruction of much of its infrastructure. These losses made the Athenians increasingly worried about the possibility of invasion by Sparta or its allies. In response, they built defensive walls and fortifications around the city and relied on their remaining military forces to repel any external invasions. In the aftermath of the Peloponnesian War, Athens remained vulnerable to attack from other city-states and conflicts continued to flare up periodically. For example, the Corinthian War saw Athens facing a coalition of city-states led by Sparta. This ever-present Sword of Damocles threatened the city's security and stability. And after the formal conclusion of the war in 404 BC, with the fall of Athens after a prolonged siege by the Spartan navy, Athens was ruled by an oligarchic government known as the Thirty Tyrants. They were a mixture of Athenian and Spartan elites who had been installed by the victorious Spartan army to rule over Athens with an iron fist. A fist to prevent further rebellions against the fledgling empire. The Thirty Tyrants were led by Critias, a prominent Athenian aristocrat and, ironically enough, a pupil of Socrates himself. They were appointed with a specific mandate to suppress democratic elements within the city and engender a more authoritarian status quo for the citizenry. The Tyrants' rule was marked by the implementation of bloody purges, executions of political opponents, confiscating property, and imposing harsh restrictions on democratic institutions. 
ones that left them all but impotent, save their names. Needless to say, the Thirty Tyrants regime was widely unpopular among the Athenian population, specifically among those who valued democratic ideals and had fought against Sparta during the war. Many Athenians saw their rule as a betrayal of the democratic principles Athens had long championed and held up as universal ideals to copy. However, the rule of the Thirty Tyrants was relatively short-lived. Their harsh actions and disregard for democratic values created discontent among the Athenian citizenry. And in 403 BC, an exiled group of Athenians, led by Thrasybulus, organized a violent rebellion against the tyrants. They received support from democratic-minded citizens and other Greek city-states, including Thebes. The rebellious guerrilla movement was eventually successful after eight months of continuous and steady warfare that saw them slowly reconquer territory ceded to the Spartan forces. The Thirty Tyrants were thus overthrown, and the much-vaunted Athenian democracy was officially restored. So overall, the Athenian people of this time period were steeped in external conflicts and internal repressions. And though they were not obsessively worried about external invasion, the simmering conflicts in the region did create a sense of insecurity and concern about another possible attack. Though they ultimately restored their democratic order, they remained hobbled by decades of infrastructure damage, a weakened military, and a disrupted economy. So amidst the trial of Socrates in 399 BC, we must remember that just five years prior, the evil 30 from Sparta were raining bloody hell and terror upon the Athenians. Anything that might even slightly resemble dissidence against democracy could have been wildly misinterpreted as being pro-oligarchy or pro-dictatorship. Or conversely, anything Socrates said that could have been tangentially understood to be anti-democratic would by default have been considered hostile to the newly rediscovered political ideals of an independent Athens. One that may still have been on guard against threats to their order and a feeling a little extra boost of nationalistic pride about its place in the world. With this context in mind, we can imagine how Athens proper was facing a range of social and political challenges. There were deep divisions within the city between the wealthy elite and the common people, about people's allegiances in the recent past, and tensions were also running high between different political factions. There were also creeping concerns about the moral and intellectual decline of Athenian society, as well as fears of social unrest and instability. And again, we think of Socrates himself who was known to be highly critical of Athenian democracy and its leadership, openly and often loudly. For he had a reputation for challenging the beliefs and values of his fellow citizens and was often seen as a threat to the established order. Not that he actually was, as we'll hear later in his Apologia to the Assembly, because he sought no office or power over any man for he believed that this would deeply corrupt a person and create a powerful lust for riches, things the true philosopher saw as worthless because they didn't positively advance a man's virtue. Indeed, 
political power seemed to instigate radical regressions of individual ethics, honesty, and honor of any person who dared attempt to master it. Something even the most pious men of Athens could not seem to righteously conquer. Which leads us now to the religious ideals and culture of the time, something that cannot be forgotten throughout the entirety of this series. And I say this emphatically because it cannot be understated. Ancient Greece cannot be understood as a secular modern democracy. It was nothing of the sort, and you really need to abandon any modern connotations or reimaginations of this era you may erroneously hold. They were not post-Enlightenment progressives who valued democracy with the same political supremacy as many in the modern day do. First and foremost among their concerns in regular life were the gods. This is opposed to the now political religion of Western liberal democracy. The city-state of Athens was, at an individual, familial, communal, and to a large degree, political, theocracy that upheld pagan religion as the most important superstructure in day-to-day -day life. With the notable exception that a limited democracy was the best method to govern human affairs under the gods. It was a democratic tradition that anyone today would slander as openly misogynist, elitist, predatory towards children, indifferent towards slavery, and deeply corrupt. All were norms of the day that should be consciously and actively recalled as we understand this story. So I'll expand on this idea a bit because a large percentage of the charges ultimately laid against Socrates were religiously derived. Corrupting the youth and impiety towards the gods were both accusations made against the great philosopher because of the subversive nature of his virtue-laden teachings. Ones that could have and probably should have been understood to be thinly veiled atheistic rationalism that was deduced by deploying an unrelenting skepticism of all things supernatural. Remember that all peoples of ancient Greece were quite religious and their beliefs and practices influenced nearly every aspect of their daily lives. They believed in a pantheon of gods and goddesses, each of whom had their respective spheres of power. These deities were believed to be powerful but also fallible and subject to human emotions such as jealousy, anger, and love. These understandings of the gods are readily demonstrated in the various mythological stories associated with the time, like Prometheus and the Gift of Fire, the Labors of Hercules, and the Lore of Medusa. And as a result, the Greeks felt it was important to keep the gods and goddesses happy through various forms of tribute, ritual, and homage. Athenians in particular worshipped a diverse array of deities, with the Olympian gods being the most prominent among them. These included Zeus, the king of the gods, Hera, Athena, Apollo, Artemis, Aphrodite, and Hermes. Public temples and alleged sanctuaries were built to honor these deities, where unique rituals, prayers, and sacrifices were conducted to seek their blessing. 
And again, because these deities were so important in the outcomes of their individual and national futures, festivals and public celebrations were important to their cultural identity. These festivals included religious processions, athletic competitions such as the Olympic Games held every four years, musical and dramatic performances, sacrifices, and communal feasts. These events were important for social cohesion, reinforcing religious beliefs, and fostering a sense of community. Things that seem quite distant to the occupant of a Western liberal democracy that prides itself on multiculturalism. Also of supreme importance to the superstitious and relatively primitive way of life in ancient Greece were oracles and prophecies. Oracles played a significant role in Greek religious practices, and the most famous was the Oracle of Apollo at Delphi. This is the place where individuals sought advice and prophecies from Pythia, the priestess of Apollo. She would enter a trance-like state and provide enigmatic and cryptic answers to questions posed by any visitors. Interesting to note here is that when Socrates himself paid her a visit, a pit stop on his never-ending quest to find the most intelligent man on earth, he was advised that no one was wiser than him. An answer he found ridiculous considering that he readily admitted that he didn't know anything at all. But getting back to the religiosity of the Greeks, domestic worship and household gods were almost universal. The Athenian citizenry maintained household shrines dedicated to specific deities such as Hestia, the goddess of the hearth, who symbolized the warmth and unity of the family. Families offered prayers and small sacrifices at these shrines to ensure the well-being and protection of their households. And finally, on the religious front, Greeks were enthusiastically generous with their sacrifices and offerings. Animal slaughter was a common religious practice in ancient Greece wherein sheep, goats, and bulls were killed at temples or public altars. Then, the blood, bones, and entrails of the sacrificed animals were often burnt as offerings, while the meat was shared among the participants in a communal feast. These sacrifices were believed to appease the gods and ensure their favor in economic dealings, war, and agricultural success. So needless to say, they were not even close to a scientific liberal understanding of the world we occupy today. So you really need to view this true crime tale of Socrates' trial through this lens. Indeed, they'd have to wait for Aristotle several decades later, around 340 BC, to invent even primitive scientific methods, many of which were wildly off base. I reiterate this point because, for the modern listener, I can see how many would be tempted to look at them through our contemporary lens. They were, after all, the foundational people and ideas that fostered the modern incarnations of politics, justice, and the search for truth and beauty. Things they were no doubt well ahead of their time for, but not even close to on par with the long arc of history we now occupy. So now that we have a better understanding of Greek society in the 4th century BC, we can now fuse this together with what we know about our star philosopher. 
Socrates made a substantial portion of his existence revolve around openly questioning many aspects of Athenian society. Most prominently, this included its political institutions, its religious beliefs, and its corresponding cultural values. For he believed that people should examine their operating principles critically and question them unrelentingly. This is in stark opposition to a normy existence of simply accepting the world around you in an apathetic and uncritical manner. But we can now easily see why Socrates' overt skepticism and contrarian attitudes made him unpopular among the ruling elite. For they were largely a shadow plutocracy who saw him as a threat to the established order. One who may have been fostering a radical new brand of moralistic thinking that would have eventually challenged the status quo hierarchies and dominant social systems. This sentiment is perfectly captured by a summarization of Plato's teachings. One that says, We can easily forgive a child who is afraid of the dark. The real tragedy of life is when men are afraid of the light. And we can easily surmise this sentiment through antidotal and historical evidence available to anyone with high school education and the ability to recall events older than a couple years. And though technology and social norms may have changed since ancient Greece, political incentives remain exactly the same. And in regard to Socrates' frequent socio-political challenges, the democratic order was usually a high priority for his scathing critiques. He generally believed that democracy was corrupt, unjust, and slanted towards the wealthy elite class. This was at odds with a primary focus of his political philosophy, which was the overarching common good. To Socrates, the common good was the ultimate aim of human actions and the foundation of a truly just society. According to his arguments, the common good could be achieved through the pursuit of virtue and knowledge by every single citizen, or at least a critical mass to force the issue in a majoritarian way. For Socrates also held that the well-being of individuals and the well-being of the community were interconnected and mutually dependent upon one another. He believed that a just and harmonious society could only be achieved when individuals acted virtuously and cultivated their individual wisdom. Ultimately, and allegedly according to Plato, he argued that all human beings desired happiness and fulfillment, but true happiness could only be attained through moral excellence and the cultivation of wisdom. He then allegedly argues that political leaders should be chosen based on their wisdom and virtue, rather than their wealth or social status. Throughout the text of Plato's Republic, Socrates, who is the main character of the dialogue, is made to make all sorts of arguments on behalf of a supposed class of philosopher kings who would benevolently rule society. From one angle, his approach in this platonic work can be seen as rigidly totalitarian and deeply unjust. This is a topic we'll address later on because to me, it seems as though Socrates himself wouldn't actually endorse this brand of authoritarian control over society. But for the time being, 
Let's just take it at face value and assume Socrates' core teachings were misapplied by Plato for his own philosophical purposes. Another way in which Socrates challenged Athenian society was through his association with young men, which was considered unconventional and scandalous at the time. Recall that corrupting the youth was one of the two charges laid against him by Miletus, Anytus, and Lycon. This was because he spent much of his time engaging in philosophical discussions with young men, including many who were not from wealthy or influential families. This challenged the traditional hierarchy of Athenian society, which placed great emphasis on social status and wealth. And you were only supposed to discuss important topics with revered elders and supposed wisdomous gentlemen, not the simple youth of the city. And this is not even to mention the possibility of sexual jealousy from Athenian elites. In ancient Greece, pederasty was an accepted and institutionalized socio-cultural practice involving an older man, the Aristes, and a younger man, the Eremenus. It was supposed to involve an educational and mentoring component, but also involved an overt sexual component as well with the older man guiding the younger one in various aspects of life, including intellectual and romantic pursuits. The full nature of Socrates' relationships with young men, such as his most famous student, Plato, is not entirely clear, as there are differing interpretations and limited historical records. And recall that Plato never did take a wife during his lifetime, and various theories can be bandied about on this front. And I want to highlight that these practices are an evil and disgusting custom from which nearly every culture of antiquity participated in. In ancient China, for example, a similar practice called Shudo was documented. It involved a relationship between an older male scholar, the Shi, and a younger male student, the Daizi. The Shi would provide guidance, education, and mentorship to the Daizi, often within the context of Confucianism. This relationship was considered a part of the broader educational system and the transmission of knowledge and virtues. And also in ancient India, pederastic relationships known as Gurukula or Guru-disciple were mentioned in ancient Indian text. These relationships involved an older male guru and a younger male student, referred to as the Shishya. The guru would provide spiritual and intellectual guidance to the shisha, imparting knowledge and moral values. However, it is worth noting that the focus of these relationships was predominantly on mentorship and spiritual development, rather than the sexual aspects. So regardless of where you went in the world 2500 years ago, men were sexually exploiting minors, and it's hard to imagine that something like this wasn't going on in Socrates' own circle. Now, I'm not saying this definitely happened, but it's not wildly improbable that it was happening. How this makes you think of the man is up to you, but keep in mind that this was a socially embraced concept of the day, as vile as it obviously is. But sexual exploitation of minors aside, 
many Athenian elites would have been deeply suspicious of Socrates' association with a following of very young men. Their concerns were likely rooted in broader cultural and social norms rather than mere sexual jealousy. As in, he's taking all the available boys from us. For Greek society, placed significant importance on maintaining social order, upholding traditional values, and preserving the well-being of the community. There were certain expectations regarding appropriate relationships between older and younger men, and deviations from those norms could be met with skepticism or disapproval. So from an ignorant and cynical point of view, Athenian elites could have seen a multi-layered rationale for accusing Socrates on this file. 1. He was out of line for even speaking to them as equals. 2. He may be teaching them subversive ideas. 3. His inclusive and enlightening worldview could threaten us. And 4. All of the aforementioned items, plus we could have those boys for ourselves and he's stealing them. Ironically, the entire nature of the charges against Socrates proved that he was correct in his estimation of Greece's deeply-seated problems. Not only for the fact that such charges could be laid upon such a highly respected and revered voice of Athens, but that it was through democracy itself that this situation came to a head, and that by way of majority rule, Socrates was to meet his untimely demise. So now that you have a more thorough understanding of the man, his beliefs, the times in which he lived, and how he related to his society, we can now begin to look at what we can call the pre-trial events, procedures, and institutions. To start, we can note the existence of the Vuli, which is spelt B-O-U-L-E. This was a council of 500 citizens who were chosen by lot for one-year terms to serve in the city's State Democratic Assembly. This was the overarching governmental structure that was to vote on day-to-day -day political matters and were the ones ultimately responsible for hearing the initial charges made against Socrates. The members of the Vuli were responsible for managing the city's affairs, such as maintaining public order, managing the finances, allotting money for infrastructure, and overseeing the application of law. According to its customs, each of the ten tribes of Athens was responsible for selecting 50 members to the Vuli, who would in turn serve an annual term. The members of the Vuli were chosen by chance of draw to prevent any one group or individual from gaining too much power against the others, a means to limit intra-tribe conflict and promote social cohesion. So it is likely that Miletus, Antius, and Lycon, after conspiring in a smoke-filled room along with several other wealthy Athenians, brought their complaints about Socrates to the body's attention or perhaps more specifically, to the Archon, who was the chief magistrate of Athens. And just as a quick side note, yes, there could have been smoke-filled rooms even 2,000 years ago. Ancient Greeks apparently utilized cannabis or hemp, dittany, henbane, and various aromatic herbs for different pharmacological and ceremonial purposes. 
so it's not beyond the realm of possibility that Socrates' enemies met over some wine and henbane to discuss a conspiracy to take him down. Regardless though, after the magistrate heard the indictments laid against Socrates, he likely would have needed some time to reflect, gather some evidence, if he was doubtful of the charges, and perhaps confer with some trusted advisors. Conversely, if he was a conspirator in this whole ordeal, which would make some sense considering that it took them 70 years of Socrates' life before they decided he had finally gone too far, then the fixed charges would have been a formality of presentation that were summarily granted a trial forthwith. But regardless of how it went down, the magistrate thought well enough of the charges or the accusers to permit a full Athenian jury and trial. This would be created from scratch and that particular pool of jurors would consist of 501 random male citizens. This number likely selected to prevent a tie. And as custom specified, they were mandated to enter a verdict at the completion of each party's arguments and then set a punishment if the defendant was found guilty on any of the charges. The location of the trial was to be the city center, otherwise known as the Agora, and more specifically, the Stoa Basileos. This was one of the most prominent buildings and served as a law court where various legal proceedings took place. It had an elevated platform where the accused and the accusers presented their arguments before a jury of Athenian citizens. Imagining this, we can easily see how modern legal systems built their courtroom structures off of this basic template. And now we can start getting into the juiciness of this whole ordeal. The formal charges laid against Socrates after the magistrate arraigned him to make a legal appearance. The two laws Socrates was alleged to have transgressed were 1. Impiety against the gods and 2. Corrupting the youth of Athens. To begin with the impiety charge, we first have to recall our earlier clarifications about the importance, some might say bedrock necessity, of pagan religiosity to Greek existence. And because of the hallowed reality of deistic worship, this charge is arguably the more important of the two, for it would necessarily involve being demonic or almost terroristic to actively denounce the cosmic order and incur the wrath of a litany of vengeful gods on Athenian society. Socrates was accused of not recognizing the gods acknowledged by the state and furthermore of introducing new deities into Athenian society. His accusers argued that Socrates had dismissed the city's religious customs by promoting a form of skeptical rationalism that by its very nature challenged traditional beliefs. They claimed that he engaged in critical questioning and encouraged others to question the existence of the gods and the divine nature of the universe itself. And it's critical to note here that Socrates did not explicitly deny the existence of any gods. Rather, he implicitly questioned the conventional understanding of the deity's nature and sought a deeper understanding of the divine order. And through this logical process, often referred to as the Socratic method, something which we will get into once the trial begins, his philosophical inquiries often led to challenging the authority of traditional religious practices. 
and though I wonder whether Socrates was at his core somewhere between a deist, i.e. someone who thinks there are gods but that they don't actively intervene in day-to-day -day life, and an atheist, i.e. someone who doesn't believe in gods at all, I do know for certain he was intelligent enough to mind his manners on the topic of religion. No doubt treading lightly around the topic and not being belligerent about his skepticism around the religious extremists of the city, lest he become the victim of his own logic. And then we have the second charge against Socrates, which is corrupting the youth of Athens. One which seems to be a much more nebulous concept for his accusers to prove. The way Miletus, Antius, and Lycon would tell it, Socrates had used his intellectual prowess and influence to turn the young men against their elders and traditional values. And that because he challenged their polytheistic beliefs, questioned their basic divine assumptions, and encouraged critical thinking, he should be seen as a threat to the established social order held dear by the Athenian society. His accusers allege that Socrates' teachings led the young Athenians to question authority, engage in subversive activities, and disregard traditional family values. And subsequently, this was, in the long run, detrimental to the stability and harmony of the city-state. So it's hard to tell here if the accusers are being completely honest or opportunistically evil, and it's not hard to see it from either direction. On the one hand, if they genuinely believed these things they were saying, it would essentially reveal their stubborn ignorance, or I guess, simple-mindedness towards Socrates' fields of inquiry. Someone who pig-headedly did not want to, or mentally could not, facilitate a conversation that involved questioning one's beliefs would genuinely consider Socrates' criticisms to be blasphemous. Recall that another one of his famous maxims was, the unexamined life is not worth living. A statement that reveals just how deeply Socrates felt about the necessity of introspection and its necessity for a fulfilled life. For otherwise, you might as well just kill yourself. Conversely, if they were simply trying to ring him up on an extra charge because they didn't like the results or possibilities that lay on the horizon, then this is explanatory as well. Dogpiling onto a straw man argument is a seemingly natural human instinct that isn't lost on us right up until this day. If you have an enemy and are honest with yourself about how you think about them, you can see how you are immediately tempted to heap additional evil intent and penalties upon them using precarious evidence or assertions. Ultimately, these charges reflect the tension between Socrates' philosophical approach and the established norms and beliefs of Athenian society. While some saw him as a disruptive influence, others recognized his commitment to pursuing truth and engaging in philosophical discourse. Unfortunately, the ones who considered him a blasphemous subversive were the ones who set up this whole show trial to begin with. And before we get going into the trial itself, we should take a quick look at Socrates' accusers. Who were Miletus, Antius, and Lycon? 
Miletus was a young Athenian citizen who was said to belong to the Deme, the local district, of Pythos, situated in the region of Alopecia. Miletus was known to be an up-and-coming politician and prominent democratic booster of Athens. He likely played a crucial role in the lead-up to the prosecution by gathering evidence and presenting arguments against Socrates to both the magistrate and other prominent Athenians. For he would need to ensure elite approval for these moves so as to not needlessly destroy a prominent citizen and endanger his own future ambitions. Indeed, this may have served as a de facto loyalty test for the young man. Additionally, he could have been just a vindictive simpleton who was lashing out at Socrates because he simply couldn't admit his own intellectual shortcomings or lacked the mental gifts to properly and convincingly justify his positions. In Plato's Apology, Miletus is portrayed as an inexperienced and naive individual who lacked a deep understanding of philosophical matters. Socrates would directly challenge Miletus' knowledge and comprehension, and in doing so, expose the gaping holes in his arguments. Beyond his involvement in the trial, little else is known about Miletus. He was not an active follower or interlocutor with Socrates or Plato, or other historians would have made sure to capture some more information about this notorious young man. It has even been suggested that he was largely a corroborating puppet for the next of Socrates' accusers. For next, we have Antius, who was the most prominent of the three accusatory parties. Antius was a relatively successful and rising middle-class politician from a family of tanners. He was a notable Athenian who had served as a general in the aforementioned Peloponnesian War and was summarily blamed for the fall of Pylos to the Spartan forces. For this, he was charged with treason but managed to beat the rap by bribing the jury. But he regained his reputational bona fides by playing an intricate role in the democratic guerrilla movement that would eventually succeed in overthrowing the 30 tyrants. And despite the reality of him and his family losing significant property over the course of oligarchical rule, he made no attempt to recoup his losses. And on this front, publicly supported the amnesty of Euclides in 403 BC that prohibited prosecution of offenses occurring during or before the rule of the 30. And when we get to his motivations for prosecuting Socrates, we find two possible explanations. The first is that Socrates often questioned democracy as a governing regime and a revolutionary warrior for that cause would not take such criticisms lightly, especially when he laid his life on the line for these ideals. We get a snippet of this idea when in Plato's work Mino, Socrates openly notes that Athenian statesmen have offered nothing in terms of understanding or engendering virtue, and apparently Antaeus, who was at some point on speaking terms with Socrates, replies with, quote, Socrates, I think that you are too ready to speak evil of men, and, if you will take my advice, I would recommend you to be careful." Unquote. With this in mind, we return to my earlier point about pederasty and ancient Greek culture's affinity for man-boy relationships. 
for its being additionally asserted that Socrates may have been involved with Antaeus's son. If it was sexual or not, we can't be sure, but what we do know we can cite from Xenophon that, at the very least, involved Socrates openly denigrating Antaeus's craft of hide tanning. A vulgar profession that would have been looked down on by aristocratic elites who were writing on Socrates' behalf. According to Xenophon's apology, we read that Socrates had a dust-up with an irate Antaeus and said to him, quote, that he ought not confine his son's education to hides, unquote. This was a direct shot at a father teaching a son his craft, and one that Socrates felt was lacking in virtuous instruction, no doubt. Or perhaps, the lack of meaningful education was due to the father himself, a possible attack on Antaeus's idiocy. Regardless, author and historian I.F. Stone notes that, quote, One might add that Antaeus was not unreasonable in withdrawing his son from Socratic tutelage. Antaeus had reason to fear that his son may have been turned by Socrates against his father, taught to despise the family business and converted by his aristocratic associations into pro-Spartan snobs and oligarchs. Unquote. Which finally leads us to Lycon, the least popular and most underwhelming accuser. Lycon was apparently known as an orator, perhaps even a sophist, and as you can probably guess, Socrates held these professions in dire contempt. Centuries later, in transcribing some oral tradition stories of the trial, Diogenes Laertius called Lycon, quote, a demagogue who made all the necessary preparations for the trial, unquote. Additionally, and getting back again to possible pederasty, we have Douglas Linder's assertion that, quote, Lycon may have also blamed Socrates for a homosexual relationship between his son, Autolycus, and a friend of Socrates, three decades older than Autolycus, named Callias. In Plato's Symposium, Socrates, during a dinner party, praises the quote-unquote higher love of Callias for the much younger Autolycus, unquote. So there are his accusers embodying an array of political, intellectual, and possibly sexual gripes against the philosopher and his teachings. Different motivations and endgames, but all joining together to make a more cohesive case against Socrates to take him down once and for all. Not necessarily envisioning a death sentence, more likely than not having him exiled and perpetually shamed and discredited in the imaginations of the Athenian collective consciousness would have been preferable. So after what I imagine was at least several days after the magisterial grant of indictment, the trial itself took place in the Agora, the public square of Athens. And this is the point in our story where we can start to look at the historical record and the texts that are directly related to the trial. We begin with Plato's Euthyphro. This is a very short text that I will include in the show notes and one that I highly recommend reading as supplementary material. For not only is it a quick and easy read, as in it may only take you 15 minutes to consume, but it gives us a nice setup to the trial of Socrates' general character and as a prefatory approach to the court proceedings. 
Euthyphro is named as such because this is the name of a man that Socrates randomly bumps into outside of the courthouse just moments before his trial is set to begin. You almost get the sense that Socrates is absentmindedly delaying his own trial just to speak with this man and ponder a couple of philosophical questions, showing little regard for the trial in general. And this should be amusing to anyone who has read about Socrates, because you can almost picture him being completely nonchalant about the severity of the trial and his single-minded focus on mining out pure truth about the topics he broaches. This also clearly demonstrates his lifetime dedication to philosophical righteousness attained through dialogue. Euthyphro and Socrates seem to be acquaintances of some vintage since they instantly recognize each other and immediately start talking. In the first few pages, we see Socrates outlining the charges against him. He states that, quote, What is the charge? Well, a very serious charge which shows a good deal of character in the young man and for which he is certainly not to be despised. He says he knows how the youth are corrupted and who are their corruptors. I fancy that he must be a wise man, and seeing that I am the reverse of a wise man, he has found me out and is going to accuse me of corrupting his young friends. For he brings a wonderful accusation against me, which at first hearing excites surprise. He says that I am a poet or maker of gods, and that I invent new gods and deny the existence of old ones. This is the ground of his indictment." Unquote. Euthyphro can't believe the charges will stick, and with this drastic underestimation of the situation, casually moves on to his case at King Archon's court. In his situation, he is formally charging his father with the murder of a laborer who was working on his estate. Apparently, the laborer in question got drunk and then himself murdered a slave who he was working alongside. So Euthyphro's father bound the laborer in a ditch while he awaited word from the authorities about what to do with this criminal. In the interim, the laborer died, likely from exposure or dehydration, and despite his family's wishes, he is pursuing the case against his own dad. He states that, quote, My father and family are angry with me for taking the part of the murderer and prosecuting my father. They say that he did not kill him, and that if he did, Dead man was but a murderer, and I ought not to take any notice. For a son should not be impious towards his father. Which shows us, Socrates, how little they know what the gods think about impiety and piety itself." Unquote. So Euthyphro's argument is essentially, it doesn't matter who is killed, but whether or not the killing itself was just. And this brings us to an interesting overlap between Socrates' and Euthyphro's case. For Euthyphro is directly asserting that he knows the will of the gods by righteously indicting his father for a capital crime. Socrates jokes that, quote, It is indeed most important, my admirable Euthyphro, that I should become your pupil, and as regards this indictment, challenge Miletus about these very things and say to him, that in the past too I considered knowledge about the divine to be most important, and that now that he says that I am guilty of improvising and innovating about the gods, I have become your pupil. I would say to him, if Miletus you agree that Euthyphro is wise in these matters, consider me too to have the right beliefs and do not bring me to trial. 
If you do not think so, then prosecute that teacher of mine, not me, for corrupting the older men, me and his own father, by teaching me and by exhorting and punishing him. If he is not convinced and does not discharge me or indict you instead of me, I shall repeat the same challenge in court." Unquote. So with that being said, with a sarcastic and incredulous tone no doubt, Euthyphro explains that, quote, I say that the pious is to do what I am doing now, to prosecute the wrongdoer, be it about murder or temple robbery or anything else, whether the wrongdoer is your father or your mother or anyone else. Not to prosecute is impious. And observe, Socrates, that I can cite powerful evidence that the law is so. I have already said to others that such actions are right, not to favor the ungodly, whoever they are. These people themselves believe that Zeus is the best and most just of the gods. Yet they agree that he bound his father because he unjustly swallowed his sons, and that he in turn castrated his father for similar reasons. But they are angry with me because I am prosecuting my father for his wrongdoing. They contradict themselves in what they say about the gods and about me." Unquote. Socrates humors this explanation, but then reminds him that he wants to agree with these ideas, but that he finds it impossible because assertions of God's will tend to be quite unconvincing. This is because not only are we ignorant of what they want, but even more so that the gods even exist at all. Euthyphro wishes to push his case further still, but is interrupted when Socrates essentially warns him that he could come up with all sorts of wild explanations but that he wants to know more about the nature of piety itself, meaning, how do you know you are acting piously? Socrates wants to know the pure form of piousness itself so that he can present this in his court case. Eventually, Euthyphro states that what the gods want and hold dear is pious, and Socrates points out that it seems, based on the various stories and mythologies, that the gods are in a constant state of war with one another. Socrates then leaves this point on the table, so to speak, and then quickly shifts to point out that, in the absence of an objective, universally agreed upon term of measurement, like a length and a weight system, for example, people become rather opinionated about their assertions and quite often hostile. He then returns to the gods and has Euthyphro admit that they too must have irreconcilable differences among them, since this is so evident when they often clash. Socrates then says, quote, According to your argument, my good Euthyphro, different gods consider different things to be just, beautiful, ugly, good, and bad, for they would not be at odds with one another unless they differed about these subjects, would they? Unquote. Surprisingly, Euthyphro agrees to this proposition, likely not realizing what's going on and further proving Socrates' overarching thesis, but nonetheless stumbles forward and boldly asserts another impossibility. He essentially claims that the gods disagree over petty things, but that, in the case of Euthyphro's murder charge against his father, they are in complete harmony. Socrates then has him admit that when it comes to possibly lethal consequences of import, People will do and say anything to justify their position and avoid justice. Furthermore, the gods must do the same since they run afoul of each other occasionally. 
Socrates prods him further still by stating that, quote, Come now, my dear Euthyphro, tell me too, that I may become wiser. What proof you have at all that the gods consider that man to have been killed unjustly, who became a murderer while in your service, was bound by the master of his victim, and died in his bonds before the one who bound him found out from the seers what was to be done with him, and that it is right for a son to denounce and to prosecute his father on behalf of such a man. Come, try to show me a clear sign that all the gods definitely believe this action to be pious. If you can give me adequate proof of this, I shall never cease to extol your wisdom." Unquote. After some more discussion, Euthyphro is then forced to refine his argument and define what piety and impiety is. He notes that conclusively, piety can be defined as words, actions, thoughts, ideals, and even people that the gods love, and impiety is their exact opposite. Socrates then asks, quote, We shall soon know better whether it is. Consider this though. Is the pious being loved by the gods because it is pious, or is it pious because it is being loved by the gods?" Unquote. Now this is one of the most important questions in philosophy because it forces Euthyphro to make a choice that will inevitably paint himself into a corner. And we need to keep in mind that regardless of his choice, he is claiming knowledge that seems to be out of the realm of possibility. For example, if the gods love Euthyphro's prosecution of his father because it is pious, then this doesn't tell us a thing about why they think it's pious. Conversely, if his prosecution is pious because it is loved by the gods, then it is logically possible that even the most absurd and brutal actions imaginable could be considered pious. This is because the bare minimum for piety in this situation is that the gods love it. And at the core of Socrates' deconstruction of these arguments is the assertion that you can't make the quality of an act dependent upon your subjective emotional response to it. And from there, claim its piety based upon your own personal interpretation of other sources and variables. This line of argument causes Euthyphro to abandon his hypothesis, and after some exchanges, goes on to say that, quote, I think, Socrates, that the godly and pious is part of the just that is concerned with the care of the gods, while that concerned with the care of men is the remaining part of justice. For it is a considerable task to acquire any precise knowledge of these things, but to put it simply, I say that if a man knows how to say and do what is pleasing to the gods at prayer and sacrifice, those are pious actions, such as preserve both private houses and public affairs of state. The opposite of those pleasing actions are impious and overturn and destroy everything." Unquote. So now Euthyphro is insisting that piety and impiety isn't what the gods love or hate, it's the knowledge and adherence to acting in accordance with God's wishes. How to pray, sacrifice, beg, etc. Socrates then points out that acting according to the wishes of the gods implies knowledge of godly needs. And he additionally points out that what could such mighty deities do with our earthly pittances and gestures if they are so great? And he again repeats, How do you, Euthyphro, claim knowledge of the gods? 
and they wind up back at the exact beginning of the dialogue when Socrates says, quote, Do you realize that our argument has moved around and come again to the same place? You surely remember that earlier, the pious and the God-loved were shown not to be the same, but different from each other, or do you not remember this? Unquote. And after pressing this point in other ways, Euthyphro essentially gives up and says it's time for him to go. Take care for now, buddy. And in a rather scathing final statement, Socrates says, quote, What a thing to do, my friend. By going, you have cast me down from a great hope I had, that I would learn from you the nature of the pious and the impious, and so escape Miletus' indictment by showing him that I had acquired knowledge and wisdom of the divine matters from Euthyphro and my ignorance would no longer cause me to be careless and inventive about such things, and that I would be better off for the rest of my life." Unquote. This ends the dialogue, and from it we can glean a few facts regarding our impending court case. The first is that Socrates has the tendency to mentally grind down anyone who he speaks with. So much so, that they eventually give up and seek a hasty retreat from his conversations. And from this, we can make an informed estimation that this is Socrates' MO, and different people would have had different reactions. A relatively passive acquaintance like Euthyphro may just fold his proverbial hand and move on to a different casino table. But others, like a stubbornly ignorant amateur who just lost a big pot, would be completely enraged at their idiocy being perfectly reflected back to them, leaving Socrates to fill the role of Wild Bill Hickok while holding a pair of aces and eights. This is all to say that Socrates' method of argumentation colliding with arrogant stupidity would likely result in many public embarrassments, the likes of which would have provoked murderous fantasies in his enemies. The second thing we can learn from this exchange is Socrates' method of attaining truth and wisdom. This is something I'll get into more closely in the next part of this mini-series, but suffice to say, the logic-based construction of Socrates' investigations give us a glimpse into how he's going to address the charges in court. Thirdly, we understand from Socrates' arguments against Euthyphro's claims that he was either a deist, an agnostic, or perhaps even an atheist. For the sheer manner in which he even questioned the gods in this book, even as a hypothetical situation, would likely have been beyond the pale in his time, and thus very revealing. Again, this shows his likely deep disdain for unknowable and thus unprovable and improbable gods, religious customs, and most especially, pious people who no doubt completely ignored his repetitive insistence that he, Socrates, knew nothing at all. And simultaneously, these same people would claim to know fantastical things even after having their positions completely disproven. And from this we can ascertain that the charge of impiety against him was in all likelihood a truism if understood from a blue-pilled normie Athenian perspective. He was, in a rather intelligent way, undermining the gods and their alleged servants on earth, and furthermore teaching these methods of logical deduction to his young followers. So if we take a helicopter view of the situation, we can see that Socrates really has his back up against the wall. 
for not only does he have to disprove that he's not impious and corrupting of the youth on Athenian terms, but he'll have to do this with staunch principles that prevent him from lying, deceiving, or manipulating the jury. He no doubt knew his battle was going to be that much tougher after dealing with Euthyphro. Nonetheless, he likely saw it as an informative practice match before the main event, one that would be set in front of 501 of his fellow citizens, of whom would hold the power of life and death over his head. In part two of this Trial of Socrates miniseries, we will look at the entirety of the trial itself, the philosophy of his defense, and the verdict laid upon him by his countrymen. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned. Darkcast Network, indie pods with a dark side.